Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to The Hub Today Presents Mom to Mom. I'm Maria Sansone. Thank you so much for being here today. You know, today we are talking about friends and not friends for our kids, friends for us. We know in parenting how important it is to have that community around us, the village that we talk about all the time. And friends are an essential part of this, not just for supporting our kids and our sanity, but also just supporting us as human beings. So today, friendship expert and author of the New York Times best-selling book, Platonic, Dr. Marissa Franco is joining us and sharing why having building and keeping friends is so important to our mental and physical health. It's huge. So Dr. Franco really makes the science digestible and is able to communicate that in a way that really resonates with people. And I have so many questions for her. So please welcome to mom to mom Dr. Marissa Franco. Hi, good morning. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. It is so good to see you. I, I don't know that I've ever spoken to a friendship expert, but that is you. <laughs> How did you get into this line of work specifically? There's the personal way that I got into this in a professional way. So for me in my young 20s, I went through these romantic relationships, had these breakups, and to heal, I decided to start this wellness group with my friends where we would meet up and practice wellness and cook and meditate and do yoga and I just felt so close to them and I felt so good about our friendship and it made me question some of the beliefs that I had had that made the breakups feel so bad for me, which was romantic love is the only love that counts and I'm only lovable if I have a romantic partner. And I felt like my experience reflected something larger about our culture and how our culture really devalues friendship to our great harm, I would say, for people that are both within and outside of romantic relationships. So I wanted to be part of changing that culture. And luckily, simultaneously, I was getting my PhD in counseling psychology and developing the ability to read tons of studies when it comes to friendship and connection and turning turn them into something meaningful. Yeah. How did it get this way? I mean, friendships are, you know, really on the bottom of the food chain when it comes to relationships, so to speak. Like you said, romantic relationships seem to be number one. And then there's the relationship with our families and our kids and things like that. But the friendship thing has seemed to, has less value. And, and it wasn't always this way because you've done the research, right? Where did we go wrong? Yeah. So I, I take from historian Stephanie Koontz, who looked at the history of marriage and she found that we used to marry not for love, but because someone would bring us resources or it would be an honor to join our reputations. And our family chose who we would love and partner with. And around that time in the Victorian era in the Western world, there is this idea that you can't get so close to people that don't share your gender. So fundamentally, friendship was the relationship people went to for deep intimacy. Friends held hands, carved their names into trees, cuddled with each other, went on each other's honeymoons. This was all really normal. Oh. Until. Yeah. So was, I was with you with the holding hands and the carving trees. I'm like, oh, I want to do that with my girlfriends. But have them on my honeymoon. I have to draw a line in the sand. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah. So, so what sort of changed that was that before 1867, the way that people were homophobic was different from the way they are now in that it was taboo to have sex with someone of the same sex, but anything like cuddling with someone or holding their hand or writing them love letters, that's not sex. So it wasn't taboo to do with someone of the same gender. But um, in 1867, two psychiatrists, 
Sigmund Freud, who we know, and Richard von Kraft Ebbing, they basically argued that if you love someone of the same sex, you have this whole disordered sexual orientation. And so now that it's an identity, all of these different behaviors could suggest that you have this disordered identity because it's not just having sex. It's like if you're too intimate, you know, if you're cuddling, if you're holding hands, if you're writing love letters, all of those behaviors that used to create so much intimacy in our friendships began to become stigmatized because of homophobia. And we see that this has really impacted men's friendships in particular. There's this concept called homohysteria, which is the fear of being perceived as gay which really limits the amount of intimacy men can have with each other. I mean, some research finds that men are half as likely to tell their friends that they love them compared to women. Interesting. I mean, this is a long time ago. We're talking late 1800s. So have we, have we changed? I mean, I know just, I, I lived in Italy for a period of time and I remember the men um, would hold hands and kind of like skip down the street and these were straight men. And I just felt like that was a very, that was cultural. Where here in the United States, I don't see as much of that. Um, but yeah. I'm just wondering if we've come a long way from, you know, the 1800s that you're talking about before Freud ruined everything. <laughs> I <Basically>. guess. <laughs> Thanks, Freud. Uh, I know, right? Um, I think there has been some progress, I think, particularly around younger generations. Generation Z is really questioning some of these unfortunate norms that we have and that we've created. But I, I also think we could be making a lot more progress in this regard. Um, you know, in general, we see that friendship networks have been shrinking steadily for decades and between like early 90s and around now, four times as many people have no friends, five times as many men have no friends now compared to like 30 years ago. So generally, I think even if there's a change in our ability to be more open with our friends, we still have to make those friends in the first place. And that's something we've really been struggling with. We have. And I don't think the pandemic really helped matters, you know, so we're kind of like rebuilding from that. So I loved getting the cultural and historical perspective on all this. Now we need these friendships. And as a mom and when I meet other moms, I just tell them how important it is to be able to vent with your friends and and have that camaraderie and have that community. So talk a little bit about the benefits of healthy adult friendships. So I, I teach a class on, on loneliness and my students were doing these presentations today and one of them did a presentation on postpartum depression and that one of the biggest predictors as to whether moms will get postpartum depression is when if they're lonely before right before having their child. Um, so super important for parents, super important for moms to be having that connection for their mental health at a very vulnerable time and your physical health. In fact, you know, people that are lonely, the commonly cited stat, it's loneliness is as toxic as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness wow. is not just a feeling, it's a state of chronic stress. Like our bodies are in a state of chronic stress when we're lonely that, you know, contribute to things like cancer, Alzheimer's, I mean, even tooth decay, like whatever, whatever physical problem that you might have, being lonely is going to amplify it, being in that chronic stress state. And so, you know, when we say we're social creatures, what that means is like, just like we need to eat, just like we need to drink, just like we need to breathe in oxygen, like we need to be able to socialize to be functioning well. Interesting. And I, I'm hearing what you're saying about being lonely. And I feel like a lot of women, moms, wouldn't identify necessarily. They probably wouldn't pinpoint 
the feeling of being lonely because you're surrounded by people sometimes. So you're surrounded in a house with children and your spouse or whoever it may be. You can still be lonely and be surrounded by people. And that contributes, I think, to what you were talking about with the postpartum because mm -hmm. having gone through postpartum, it's all about that isolation. And sometimes it's self-imposed, but it is all about isolation. And I guess probably at the root of it, some kind of loneliness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was a professor, I was, you know, surrounded by people and I didn't know I was lonely until I literally took this assessment of whether you're lonely called the UCLA loneliness scale that I was, I was using to, um, to, to do a study. And I looked at it and I went through the questions and I was like, a lot of these questions refer to whether I feel actually known by the people around me, not whether I'm just around them. And so I, I realized in that moment, no, I don't feel like people really know me. No, I don't feel like I'm always my authentic self around them, that I was actually lonely unbeknownst to me. And, you know, there's, there's further research that has broken apart loneliness into three different types of loneliness, which is very relevant for moms that we can experience relational loneliness and, um, sorry, we can experience intimate loneliness, which is this desire or craving for someone to have a close and intimate relationship with, like perhaps a spouse, hopefully. <laughs> and then we can also experience relational loneliness though, which is a desire for someone as close to us as a friend. And we can also experience collective loneliness, which is a desire for a group working toward a common goal. So even if you're around your spouse all the time, you can still feel lonely because like, according to our very biology, we need an entire community to feel whole. And we always have. Do you want more Hub Today delivered right to your inbox? All you have to do is sign up for the Hubbub newsletter. You'll find behind the scenes of the show, recipes, things to do with the family, places to go, all kinds of good stuff. So sign up by going to NBC10Boston.com slash newsletters. Drop your email and you'll get new content in your inbox every Wednesday. How do we meet friends. Kids have no problem, right? I take my little ones, they go to the playground and they have best friends within 90 seconds. <laughs> but for adults, it can be, and busy adults and moms, it can be really tough. So how do you recommend doing this? Yeah. So my first recommendation is do not assume it's going to happen organically because in adulthood, it does not. In fact, we find that people who think it happens organically are lonelier over time because they don't try. They don't make that effort. And so you're going to have to make an effort. What does that look like? Literally just saying to someone, oh, it's been so great to talk to you. Would you be open to exchanging contact information? Our issue though, is I think we're all so afraid of rejection. But what the research tells us is that we are less likely to be rejected than we think. Mm. When strangers interact and are asked, how much do you think this person likes you? They tend to underestimate how liked they are by the other person. It's called the like gap. So one of my biggest tips for making friends is to start by assuming that other people like you. Because when you do, according to the research, when people are told to make this assumption, they become open, friendlier, and warmer. Whereas people that assume they'll be rejected come off as cold and withdrawn and are actually rejecting people who then reject them back. Isn't that fascinating? So it becomes yeah. in some ways a self-fulfilling prophecy, however you think about your connections. Huh. It's probably a self-confidence thing too. I mean, I think it's probably a shift for a lot of people to assume that everybody likes them. I exactly. think if I'm and being then, honest, I assume that people don't like me. And then I like pro try to prove them otherwise. 
I had a reaction because you seem very likable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's just um, me. I mean, that's just like something in here, right? Like an yeah, but you're exactly right. Yeah. That there is such a connection between how we perceive ourselves and how we think people uh, perceive us. Like there's research on people in romantic relationships that finds that how much you think your spouse loves you is more of a reflection of how lovable you feel than how much your spouse actually loves you. Interesting. This is good stuff. Okay. So just to give you like a practical example of what's been happening in my life since I had kids, I noticed that, and I've moved around a lot. I lived in New York. I lived in California. I'm here in Boston. So I've been kind of a nomad. So had to meet friends, had to make friends, stuff like that. Um, I found that once I had kids, and everyone said, once you have kids, it's a lot easier because once you start preschool, there's other parents and blah, blah, blah. But what about when other moms use the kid as sort of a buffer and kind of go in for a relationship with you by way of let's have the kids have a play date, our kids seem to really like each other. Sometimes I'm not so sure if it's that or if they just are trying to make a like mom to mom connection. Yeah. Um, is that a smart vulnerable. technique or is that like <laughs> cheating? <laughs> I think it is a smart technique. What well, you know, my expertise isn't on moms in particular, but what I do know is that groups are more sustainable when the people in the groups Groups are more sustainable than individual friendships is what I'm trying to say. So if you're part of a group, it's more likely that your friendships are going to maintain than if you just have like a singleton individual friend. So if there's multiple connections between you and this other mom and your two kids, right? Your kid could be like, I want to hang out with, you know, X, Y, and Z child. And then you're going to see the mom, or you could be like, I want to hang out with that mom and your kids are going to see each other. So in that way, it becomes a lot easier to keep in touch because one person in the system of four has to have the desire to initiate rather than one person out of these, the system of two. So you just have more reliable opportunities for connection. Yeah. So let's say everything's going swimmingly. We meet somebody, we exchange numbers, we're hitting it off. So that's step one. But then there's the work that's involved in maintaining that friendship, well, establishing a friendship and developing it and then maintaining it, right? That's yep. a huge part of it. So how do you recommend doing that in such a busy world with jobs and kids and all these other relationships that we're nurturing? Uh, one thing that I suggest is to find a repeated time to hang out. Like every other Tuesday, do you want to have a play date? And, uh, you know, we can hang out too. Because there's this concept called the mere exposure effect, which is the idea that by merely being exposed to people, we like them more. So it's, it happens completely subconsciously. Like I don't even have to talk to you, but if I've seen your face repeatedly, people report liking people more because, mm -hmm. you know, evolutionarily, right. If, if I've been exposed to you over time and you haven't threatened me, it's a sign that it's safe. Hmm. So we need to have that repeated interaction. That being said, there are some ways that you can go about these interactions to make them more meaningful. Things that really create connection are vulnerability. We think that we burden people with our vulnerability, but we find that people that are more vulnerable, more likely to make friends, they're actually seen as more liked by other people, whereas people that are less vulnerable are less liked than other people. So we're actually not burdening people. We're connecting with them oh, when good. we're vulnerable. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. Because good. I'm like a diarrhea of the mouth kind of friend where <laughs> as soon as like you pick me up in the car or something, I'm like, Bleh, listen to what happened. And then like 20 yeah. minutes later, I'm like, oh, how was your day? <laughs> 
I hope that I'm not like a energy suck. Um, so I try not to do that, but I think we all, you know, live in our own heads. And so when you have a friend that you can, as my friends call it, venti latte too. It started as vent and it turned into venti. And I'm like, sorry for the venti latte. <laughs> but we do a lot of venti latte. Um, all right, let's talk about the other end of the spectrum. What if you're in a relationship with a friend uh, maybe this is a friend you've had for a long time. Maybe it was a friend who was just sort of uh, based on geography or whatever it may be. And this friendship has run its course. Is mm. there a way to, I mean, it's not like having a, a romantic partner where you kind of have a breakup and you can be like, we're done. Um, is there a proper way to end an adult friendship? Yeah. Well, the first thing that I would say is that it's normal for friendships to ebb and flow. So ask yourself, is this an ebb or an end for you? And I think that requires us to look back on the larger story of the friendship and be like, is the reason that I want to end this something that's been chronic, a chronic issue in the friendship, or is it something that's situational? Like maybe these days my friend is really busy or my friend's going through something, so they're more moody than usual. And so I think that can inform your decision. Okay, should I just kind of wait this out a little bit or should I try to formally end this? Now, if it seems like the other person wants to end it too, they're not reaching out, you're not reaching out, fine, let it end. If though, the other person seems clearly invested in a friendship with you and you are no longer interested, I actually think the kindest thing that you can do is to tell them because when people experience a loss and they don't have a reason for why that loss occurred, it triggers a more complicated grief process called mm -hmm. ambiguous loss. And while it may feel more comfortable for you to just try to ignore them and ghost on them, when we ghost on people, there's a disconnect between how we feel and how the receiver feels. So just because it makes you more comfortable doesn't mean it's making them more comfortable. In fact, you're probably making them a lot more stressed mm -hmm. than if you were able to just tell them tell them so that the other person can move on. And like you said, that grieving process, leaving that door, that ghosting door unopened, like unfinished business is so hard in the friendship mm -hmm. space too. Do you want more Hub Today delivered right to your inbox? All you have to do is sign up for the Hubbub newsletter. You'll find behind the scenes of the show, recipes, things to do with the family, places to go, all kinds of good stuff. So sign up by going to NBC10Boston.com slash newsletters. Drop your email and you'll get new content in your inbox every Wednesday. What is one thing that you would recommend that we could do today to be better friends, right? Because if we're better friends, we're gonna attract the people that we want in our lives. So there's this theory called risk regulation theory, which is the idea that we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on how likely we think we are to get rejected. So if you wanna be a better friend, you have to show people in your life that you will not reject them. And then they are going to invest more deeply with you. How can you do that? Find ways to show more affection towards your friends. Tell them how much you love them. Tell them how much they mean to you. Tell them when they say something that really resonates with you. Tell them when their support really helped you get through something. Just making sure that you are expressing appreciation and gratitude is something that really helps us maintain our connections with people. What about the different kinds of friends that we have? There seems to be like there's different friends that like fill different buckets for us, so to speak. Like there might be the workout friend, the party friend, the mom friend, the school friend, the work friend. Is that selfish of us to kind of like 
have these different categories of um, friends or is that just like how it is? I think that's what's beautiful about friendship, that it's such a spectrum. And, you know, a friend can be anything from your life partner to your, what I call low dose friend, people that you love in low doses. Um, and there's just this room for such creativity and all of the ambiguity that friendship builds brings us that sometimes distance can create intimacy and we can decide at what level of distance is there the deepest intimacy for this friendship in particular. So I encourage you to think creatively about what friendships you want in your life, how you want those friendships to show up for you and create a sort of creative mosaic of friendships based off of what you you're discerning about what your needs are. Does the romantic partner, do you find, ever get jealous of some of these friendships? You have to take a deep breath because I feel like we suffer from this misconception that friends are threats to our romantic partnership. We have less time together, but we find again and again from the research that people having friends outside of the romantic relationship is what makes a romantic relationship healthy. It's mm -hmm. one of many things that makes romantic relationships healthy. So we see, for example, that when you get into conflict with a spouse and you have quality connection outside of your partnership, it doesn't affect your stress hormone release as much. We see that if I make a friend, not only am I less depressed, but also my spouse becomes less depressed because your mental health is so entangled when you're in this sort of relationship. We see that women who tend to have closer friends are more resilient to issues within their romantic relationship when they have quality friendship outside of the marriage. So more generally, if you want your marriage to thrive, you should be encouraging each other to make friends outside of each other rather than seeing it as a threat. I love that. And I think my husband is so grateful that I have my friends that I can dump some stuff on so that he doesn't venti get latte. all of it. That I can venti yeah. latte with my friends and he doesn't have to hear all of it. Because sometimes I've said it all. So by the time he gets home, I'm like, eh, hi. <laughs> I've, already, I've already unleashed everything. Um, well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Where do you live? Can we be friends? <laughs> Sure, I'm in D.C. <laughs> May I be so forward? <laughs> anyway, it was so nice chatting with you. Um, you can find Dr. Franco on social media. She is at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.